As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Mazen Gilbert. He's a VP of AT&T Labs and their advanced technologies. He holds a PhD in electrical engineering from Liverpool John Moores University and, if that weren't enough, an MBA from Wharton as well. Welcome to the show, Mazen. Thank you for the invitation, Byron. So I always just like to kind of start out talking about what intelligence is and and why or maybe maybe a little different like why do we have such a hard time defining what intelligence is yeah that's where i'll start so um we always think of intelligence um uh, certainly machine intelligence we always compare machine intelligence to human intelligence and um um we sometimes have a, a, a challenge in equating machines to humans, um, the intelligence of machines are radically different than humans. Um, the um, intelligence is basically the ability to perform functions um, that may, one, uh, be uh, superior to any basic system to do, um, or two, require some form of context, some form of interpretation, some form of prediction that is not straightforward to do. Um, in, in, in machine intelligence, we, are, um, we really use um, that for um, anywhere from its basic form, uh, that could be as simple as moving data from one place to the other, all the way to its most advanced form to be able to process um, petabytes of data to tell us how to best optimize the traffic in our network. Both of those forms of intelligence, the most basic form and the most intelligent form, is absolutely essential to running a communication network. But I mean, why do you think AI is so hard? Because we have a lot of people working on it a whole lot of time. We put a bunch of money in it. And yet it seems that we still don't have machines able to do just the simplest, most rudimentary common sense things. Like, you know, I haven't ever found an AI bot that could answer the question, what's bigger, a nickel or the sun? Like, why is that so hard? Yeah. So um, I think we, we, we segregate AI into two classes. One classes of AI are sort of rule-based uh, systems. So these are expert systems that we've been using as a society for decades. Um, these are rudimentary bots. We actually have over 1,500 of those deployed in AT&T. They do rudimentary tasks. Think of the if-then type of statements. Um, they are very um, um, uh, basic, but they do some amazing jobs in automating functions that otherwise uh, humans would have to do at a scale, and there's no enough humans to do those jobs in some cases. Um, where 
it gets harder to understand is this, this sort of new wave of AI, uh, of machine learning, deep learning-based AIs. Um, those are harder to understand because people equate those to some robot having the intelligence of a human, thinking like a human, making decisions like a human, um, and, and, and those don't really exist today. Um, and even what exists today um, are still in their rudimentary early forms. Um, these, the machine learning type of AI that exists today, even in, in deployments, and we have a bunch of those already, the reason they're hard, because they're very data-driven. That's the basic concept of an AI machine learning system today. Data-driven, okay? We deployed our first commercial AI system for customer care in, about, in 2000, called How May I Help You? And then we had to go and collect large amount of data from our call centers to do the most basic thing. And um, as a result, there's only a few of these um, systems you can build that um, if you have to go and collect large amount of data and have this data checked, evaluated, labeled by humans, which could take weeks, months, years, so that a system can learn and do a function, that makes it really hard. So even when you think about some of the most largest and commer commercial deployments today of AI, the Siri and Lexa and others, there are hundreds, if not probably thousands of people behind that. And well, but that, that just kind of... That just kind of kicks the can down the street a little, doesn't it? I mean, I guess then I would say, why is building an unsupervised learner so hard? Why haven't we been able to just make something that you could point at the internet and it can crawl around and it can sort it out? So yeah. why do you think that's so hard? So the, the, uh, the concept of generalized artificial intelligence, which means that you build intelligence in a system and that system can do anything you want. It can classify internet traffic. It can recognize what you say. It can, it can tell you what kind of an image this is, a cat or a dog. Those systems do not exist, not in research, not in any commercial arena. They don't exist. What exists today are systems that have been developed, trained, by humans to do one narrow function. And those systems are not easy to develop because of the concept of not only you need to collect large amount of data, you need to teach the system what is the truth and what is the right action to take. I, I think of that as babies. You know, you don't train a baby in two hours or overnight, you don't. It takes years to train a baby with a lot of feedback and unsupervised feedback and sometimes supervised feedback of what is right, what is wrong, what is a picture, what is not a picture, what's a word, what's not a word, how to pronounce something. That's sort of what we need is that these systems require years of data collection with a lot of supervision and knowing the truth, just like any baby, for them to even get close to understanding and, and operating a simple Right, but but to use the baby analogy, maybe a baby takes years, but if you just measure the number of cycles, it might be thousands or tens of thousands. What should take a computer a, a minute to do, right? Yep. So that why is correct. we haven't 
we haven't, you know, just made a super fast baby learner by now. I guess, you know, it, yeah. it's kind of like you, you, you keep telling me what the problems are, but what I'm trying to get at is why is intelligence, like the thing that we are most aware of, you know, we, we are intelligent and we can think about our own intelligence. And yet we don't even have a consensus definition of what it is. We don't know how to build it. And, and so from, from that standpoint, it makes me feel like maybe we, you know, maybe this brute force. So machine learning is a, is a really simple idea. It says, let's take information about the past and study it and make projections into the future. And, and maybe that only works on a very narrow set of use cases. Maybe that really isn't intelligence at all. And it's just faux intelligence. It's just, it's just you know, we've managed to, to mimic intelligence, but we haven't built anything that has any actual intelligence whatsoever. Is that possible? So, um, you know, we, we like to think that the intelligence is the reason why it may be hard to describe it here. Because in the machine learning AI space, intelligence is embedded in the data, okay? So if I show you two pictures, a cat and a dog, you look at them and say, well, this is obviously a cat, this is a dog. Maybe a baby would not know that until they're trained to do that. But the question is, how did you know one is a cat and one is a dog? There's clearly, you acquired some data, visual data, you process this data, and somehow in your brain, in your cells, in your neurons, you decided to do some firings that determined one is a cat, one is a dog. So your intelligence is embedded in some neural systems. And this is um, what we're trying to replicate. We may not be able to write intelligence in a formula. That's not how we do it in machine learning. We don't know how to write it in a formula. But what we are able to do, think of neural nets or deep learning, which got a tremendous amount of attention, um, which, which a lot of people say has some resemblance to biological neurons. It may not be exactly true, but, but at the end of the day, there are a bunch of neurons, millions and tens of millions of these neurons, and they learn intelligence or inferences based on data. So you throw out a lot of data, a lot of pictures of the cats and the dogs, and you say, well, this is a cat and this is a dog, okay? And then these systems are then able to take arbitrary pictures of new cats, new dogs is never seen before, and are able to classify them fairly accurately. So somehow these systems learned that form of sort of hidden intelligence that was hidden in the data. What these systems are not able to do, however, is to tell you, now I've learned what a cat and what a dog is. I can't tell you, these systems cannot tell you what a pig looks like. They cannot classify a pig from a horse, whereas humans can do that. That generalization, humans are very good at that. That sophisticated, what we call generalized AI does not exist today. Well, so that's an example of transfer learning where, where, where humans are really good at taking something you learn in one sphere and apply it in another one. And maybe That is absolutely correct. And maybe that's what we really are lacking because um, we don't do that well. I mean... There are examples in machine learning of doing it between language translation. You know, I can translate between this and this language, and therefore it makes it a little easier to do this dialect of that language. But we really don't know how to do that. And you wonder if that it's is, some, something that can be done with digital computers as, as we kind of think of them now. 
That's right. And, and um, I'll tell you an experiment we actually have done and we use this today, this is real, is that we have taken 30 sophisticated large systems that recognize images of objects. Um, these systems actually exist. These models exist out in the community. Um, they're based on 20 layers of, of, of um, perceptrons, neural net perceptrons, multi-layer perceptrons, very sophisticated. Took people a long time to build those. And what we did, we did apply transfer learning because what we wanted the system to learn is not the objects or the images. We wanted them to learn. Um, we're in the business of communication. We wanted them to learn um, in a cell site, in a radio site, when you go up a tower and look at the tower, what is each piece? What object is it looking at? This is basically a wire, and this may be a rod, and this may be the radio unit. And we wanted this system to learn not only what the object is, what's wrong with the object. So what we did, we actually applied transfer learning using these systems that were built on cats and dogs and others. And we changed one layer, only the last layer in the neural net, to learn something that's very specific to AT&T. And we were amazingly successful in doing so. So yes, these systems don't know how to do, uh, to generalize to any form of intelligence, they don't. Um, but they are able to keep some learning, some intelligence they've learned from a different task. And with some minimal effort and training, you can get them to do a new task. So, Tell me about AT&T Labs. I mean, I can imagine your charter must be very big because AT&T touches so many uh, aspects of people's lives. So tell me about AT&T Labs. So um, AT&T Labs is created um, um, decades ago. Um, it actually, it, it's actually, um, its root goes back to AT&T Bell Labs. This is where... Unix and C++ and the transistors were, were invented. Uh, in fact, the, the early work on artificial intelligence did come from AT&T Bell Labs by Claude Shannon in the 50s. And um, AI has been something very dear to us because it's all about how do you use data to do smart and intelligent automation at scale. Um, we are a large business. We serve uh, 100 plus million wireless customers. We serve businesses. We serve our broadband customers with, with entertainment and advertising. And so we have a very broad business. And as part of this business, for us to succeed, it's about scale. Um, so we, we do a lot of AI work to build the network of AT&T. To build, you know, there's a lot in the news today about 5G, okay? Um, we are using AI to build 5G. Um, you know, 5G is all about uh, many, many small cells uh, and a lot of compute sitting in your backyard following you. Um, the design, the, the production, the automation of that is, is we're applying these AI capabilities to, to enable us to scale because at the scale we're looking at to do in the United States, it's just prohibitive to have enough humans to be able to design the network, to be able to optimize the traffic where it's required every second of the day, 
and to be able to place these cells wherever it's needed and to compute wherever it's needed uh, around the clock. You know, you mentioned Claude Shannon. He, he was a fascinating guy, and he wrote a paper in 49 or 50 about how a computer could play chess. And it was a yeah. kind of a really watershed event because up until that moment, computers were really good calculators, and they, 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 they manipulated numbers. And then one day, yeah. Claude Shannon says, here's how you could teach one how to play chess. And that kind of mental leap was kind of gave us the world we have today where it's like, oh, all these other things can be reduced to math. So you would have to say that Bob Shannon, you know, did something that wasn't necessarily, uh, you would almost say that was uh, pure science in a way. I mean, AT&T Bell Labs wasn't working on a chess playing computer or anything. So I'm curious, is everything you do um, applied science? Like, do you only take on projects that you say, ah, this is why this would be useful to us? Or, or are y'all doing stuff out there that you don't even know if will ever touch your business? <laughs> so um, it's a really good question. Um, I think that when, when Claude Shannon was working on the chess game, he was also working on information theory. This is what he's famous for, which, by the way, that gave birth to the digital age. We would not be exist in existence today with with digital communication, ones and zero bits uh, going around our network without him. He invented that. Um, he's the one who invented the electric mouse. That's actually the core of how AI started, of a mouse learning how to navigate through a maze. Um, what, what people don't understand is that Claude Shannon did those. We have actually a museum in New Jersey with a lot of his, uh, his, his inventions. He did them for a purpose, okay? It wasn't just he was interested. To him, it was a hobby, but he actually had a purpose for that. If he, if he solved this, he had a, an interest of where this will go. Same thing with us at AT&T Lab is that we have very broad interest. Um, our business it's communication and entertainment. And frankly, there are an infinite number of problems we work on today um, that have uh, implication on our business. Some of them may be a little far out. It may be three, five, seven years away. Some of them are within the next 12 to 24 months. But we do have to do that. It's, um, we have to look at things not only for today, um, we are actually inventing some things that may only be in use five, seven years from now. So that's the beauty of AT&T Labs. It's, uh, it's very business focused on today, but it also has the capacity to looking at three, five, seven years from now to ensure that um, this space of communication and entertainment uh, continues to, to thrive um, in the world. Yeah, and I would, I would be remiss if I didn't plug... Uh, my favorite book about Claude Shannon, if anybody's interested in that, is called A Mind at Play. I didn't write it, so yeah. I'm not just like uh, slugging my own book here. You know, a lot of people my age, I'm 50, a lot of people my age were really inspired by the You Will series of commercials you guys did back in the 90s. And to, to those who don't remember them or weren't around then, uh, he ran all of these commercials they were probably 10 or 12 there's a wikipedia entry on them and you can see them online and they're like have you ever sent a fax from the beach you will have you ever bought tickets to a, a concert 
with your phone, you will. And uh, it, it, it foresaw computer dating and being able to call in and, and check on your house through like remote cameras and all these things that none of which existed. Like you could see it would maybe be there someday, but they were remarkably prescient. They got them all right, except maybe, except maybe sending a fax from the beach. Um, but all the rest of them, you know, were, were really on. Do you, do you, does AT&T Labs do similar, like what would have been the reason to do that? And do you still do that kind of aspirational, because those were very inspirational and do you still publish things with the sole aim of getting people excited about the future and AT&T's role in it, presumably. That is absolutely correct. So number one, I should mention uh, two, three months ago, it was the anniversary of the UL campaign, 25-year anniversary of the UL campaign. And we actually, um, we uh, gathered the brightest minds at AT&T and, and a number of futurists, and we brought them together that we work with very closely. And we created the next 25-year campaign. We actually, it's available if you go to YouTube or others, you'll be able to see what we think is the next 25-year look like or what we think it looks like. It's very fascinating. Um, clearly, the, um, what happened in the past 25 years, you're absolutely right. We were, um, it's, it's great to see that a lot of these capabilities have come to life. Um, I think the next 25 years is going to be even a lot more exciting because now we're living in the era of the digital age. Um, and with 5G, uh, there's going to be an explosion of data, not between humans and machines, but between machines and machines and machines to everything. Uh, we're moving from the Internet of things to the Internet of everything. So um, if you watch the You Will, the next You Will, uh, that we put out in the past uh, two, three months ago, um, you'll see sort of the thinking of what we are trying to do in the next 25 years. Some of those, we're not, by the way, we never put the campaign to say that AT&T is building all of this. What we said is that <clears throat> AT&T <clears throat> is enabling those through um, this, this high-connected uh, mobile network and wireless network um, and that is what we are providing. Uh, for some of these applications, AT&T is actually leading and we're building those. For some of those, we will not be the one doing it. We will do it through partners. In fact, we, we just opened up um, uh, foundries at AT&T with our 5G and edge capability to allow um, small customers, medium businesses, any type of business to come and innovate together with us um, for, for towards that tw the 25 year vision campaign. It is not our intention to invent it all. It's our intention to work with the larger community, open the network, open the access, and really have others come and invent and innovate with us. You know, it's funny because when you think about infrastructure projects in the United States over the last 200 years, call it, you had the interstate highways, which were a government initiative. You had the internet, for that matter, which was largely governmental. You had the uh, Transcontinental Railroad, which was not governmental. I mean, it was subsidized. In, anyway, uh, I'm curious to what extent you think the United, that, that, the, that the forces of free markets are able to build out the next generation of infrastructure 
Or is there a role for government to play in that and to potentially take a leadership role in it? Or is that kind of one of those things that competition is going to build us a really, you know, something better than, than we could even conceive of right now? I mean, I, I cannot comment on the role of government here, but let me tell you what we're doing today in, in building the network of the future in 5G, because that's real, that's capital intensive. We are changing the ball game here than how infrastructure has traditionally been deployed, certainly for a communication company like us, okay? First, we are um, going from um, a lot of infrastructure, a lot of capital, a lot of hardware to a world where software is eating everything. That's number one. We are, we are very heavy software now focused than ever before in, in our lifetime, even as a company. That's number one. It's all about software. Number two is that the hardware we use to support the software, a lot of that is virtualized and cloud-based. A lot of that is built as commodity hardware and is built um, in as minimal location as possible because it's not just about the infrastructure, it's about maintaining the infrastructure, doing life cycle management, upgrading the infrastructure, et cetera. So we're moving to a world where maybe 10 years ago, 20 years ago, we used to be 90% hardware, 10% software. Now we're in a world where 90% is software, 10% is hardware, and even the hardware, we talk about white boxes and off-the-shelf hardware, a very different world than it's ever been before. So that, that entire view of capital investment and infrastructure investment in, in our even 5G is completely different than 4G and completely different than any of the Gs before that. All right. Well, it looks like we're running out of time here. If people want to keep up with AT&T Labs and you and all the things you all are doing, can you throw out a few uh, things to follow or find or search for? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so number one is that you can, uh, um, we have a website, www.research.att.com. Um, you can uh, search um, for AT&T Labs and AT&T Foundry. Um, um, you'll find a lot of information uh, about us. You can you could look at a lot of the open source. One of the things AT&T Labs feel very strongly about We've started a movement a few years ago about openness and open innovation. And a lot of the software we build, we actually put it in the open source, okay? We've, we've put out over 10 million lines of code just in two years. So um, go, to, um, um, go to our innovation channel also on LinkedIn, and you'll see a lot of information about AT&T Labs. All right. I want to thank you so much for the time. It was a fascinating half hour. Thank you so much. Appreciate the invitation. Have a wonderful day. As AI continues to make devices, machines, vehicles, and things more intelligent, Qualcomm is pushing AI processing to the edge, specifically onto the device. With more than a decade of advanced AI research, they're making it possible for AI and machine learning to move from the data center and the cloud to the device. For enhanced privacy and security, increased reliability, more immediate response, and faster speeds. From AI to 5G, it all starts with Qualcomm.